0: With me today is Dr. Silvia Firescu from Romania. Silvia is an international researcher, trainer, and consultant in applied network science. She's an absolute wizard. I've been taking a program with her on understanding how to use OrgMapper for network mapping, which is a phenomenal tool and a very modern and contemporary way of understanding what's going on in an organization that allows you both to truly engage and make the kinds of decisions that are appropriate for complex, rapidly dynamic periods. She also has involvement in something called Fab Lab, which is a social fabrics research lab. And I want to know what that is. So we're definitely going to be talking about that. And also uh, her work in anti-corruption, which I find really exciting because so many of the nations that are just emerging economically have got a lot to deal with. The bigger nations have Corruption issues as well. They're hidden. I'm curious to jump into that as well. Welcome to the program, Sylvia.
1: Thank you very much for the invitation, and I'm really excited to be here.
0: The ONA Summit's coming up in November. Tell us a little bit about what will happen there. What does Zorg Mapper do? What is the value of network science? Let me start with telling you a little bit about the conference. ONA
1: Summit is our flagship conference at Maven 7, and we are really proud to organize this. We managed across the years to build up a community of practitioners, researchers, and thought leaders who really believe that the future of the organizations is human, and we need to build cultures that are more human-oriented or human-centric. We use this methodology, network science, applied network science in organizations, to basically make sense of data that we have at our disposal that are able to identify the trust networks in organizations. Obviously, we've been using all sorts of tools in order to understand how the organization works, how the people feel about their work, how we can drive engagement, collaboration, and innovation. But network science is, at the moment, the most exciting, the most complex and systematic methodology that can give us insights into what previously we haven't been able to see. Most of the data that we've collected has not been interaction data or relational data. It's been Excel spreadsheets with people with all sorts of attributes and all sorts of work-related things about them. But we haven't been able to put this information together into really looking at the ecosystem, trying to understand how the formal organigram of the organization transforms in an organic way in trust, collaboration, communication that is driving the organization forward. The, the title of this year's Summit edition is The Great Cultural Shift, leading human-centered organizations. The plan is that for three days, it will be a virtual conference. It's free, so anybody can join from all over the world. We will discuss in the first day, what are human-centric organizations? And we'll have some examples. Some clients of ours will come and talk about how they transform the organization by using a methodology like this. In the second day, we talk about the great cultural shifts and the major challenge that we have in understanding how to keep good people around us and in the third day we talk about networks of trust so how do we use this information about how we connect to one another how do we relate to one another in order to move the organization forward how do we make these interventions strategic systematic with added value and measurable of course this is the plan for for 16 to 18 if your audience is up for it we are more, more than happy to welcome them in the online environment to meet people who have been working with this methodology and really believe in it. Network science is the most revolutionary science that we've ever experienced. It's a new science, not older than about 20 years old, in a more modern format. It is informed transdisciplinary. We have insights about how networks and how interconnectivity affects us all in all the fields previously, sociology, computer science, in physics, in political science and so on. But only in the last 20 years, we managed to create something new. And that was because we had the computational power, we had the technologies, and we could scale data collection, we could scale analyses of these very complex ecosystems. Since then, network science has been really revolutionizing the way some disciplines work. For example, systems biology and the discipline that was founded on the principles of networks. Epidemiology has developed a lot because of this approach. Sociology as well has become more computational. In general, social sciences have become more computational. Digital humanities, for example, are now benefiting from a lot of this methodology in terms of how data is collected, how we can look at interactions among different types of nodes, be they humans, organizations, concepts, almost anything that you can imagine. The idea is... That now we have this methodology that allows us to map all these ecosystems, and it gives us a process to analyze this in a systematic, reliable, and replicable way. And it allows us the power of the technology to scale up this methodology. So, for example, as a sociologist, you would be able to do interviews. Now we can use digital trace data and other kinds of data at our disposal in order to look at millions of interactions and find out who are the key players in these ecosystems, what are the groups, the communities that form, what is their role, for example, in information spreading or building engagement and motivation around or inspiring people. We can identify silos in organizations uh, with respect to collaboration. Based on the insights, we can understand how to build and support innovation by combining cross-functional areas of the organization in strategic ways. We can identify, for example, who are the isolated individuals or groups or organizations and how to include them better in the system. The main purpose of this is not only to find these things out, but to really understand what we can do with this information. Once we see the ecosystem, we get all excited about, oh, this is so colorful and this looks so nice. But what we see is basically a piece of reality that sometimes can be different than our expectations. Once we see it and we have the measurements, we can also act on them. For example, if we see polarization, we can derive all sorts of strategic actions in order to bridge. If we see peripheries and isolation, we can develop activities in order to integrate people better. Very exciting methodology. It's more than a methodology. It's more like a worldview where the intuition also tells us that we are interconnected And it's very useful to understand what are the implications of this interconnectivity for our
0: potential. Normally, when I look at data, it tends to be treated as looking back and seeing where we've been. But what I love about ONA is standing in the present, you're looking at the data, but you're looking ahead. There's some foresight embedded in how the data gets used. And I think that's the difference in worldview from what was normally done, which is what does the data tell us from the past and how can we extrapolate that into an unknown, uncertain, dynamic, ambiguous, volatile future versus how do we take the data that's emerging and build off of what exists to amplify what we're looking for in terms of workplaces that have a lot more cohesion, have a lot of trust built into them. Trust is so important right now because of everything people have been through. There's been a lot of trust broken. And so understanding those networks of trust is huge.
1: Absolutely. And I think one of the strengths of this worldview is that it also has very neatly embedded theory and mountains of theoretical work that has been, you know, intellectual work that has been developed around understanding how mechanisms such as trust, cohesion, collaboration, and other things like that can be generated. As opposed to, let's say, a more data science approach where you're more focused on systematizing data and insights from data. Here, the foresight also comes with a lot of knowledge about what to test, what hypotheses to test, and how to look
0: at the problem in a very reliable way. Interesting. I want to circle back to what we were just talking about at the end, because we needed to talk about language. And I think that's super important because network science and org mapper allows you to to the ecosystem of trust it's a completely different view and it also demands a different language from what we understand from traditional things we're going to circle back to that but meanwhile let we me just take a nice little trip into fab labs and tell us what that's all about
1: so fab lab is a passion project for me after i graduated from my phd in hungary budapest at central european university I left the country for political reasons. Hungary transformed a lot into an liberal democracy and semi-authoritarian bubble inside the European Union. A Romanian child, when my parents experienced the revolution and this drive towards democracy as a state of mind, I soon realized that I want to depart from that constrained area. I moved back into Romania, where I'm originally from. I decided to go back to my home university where I graduated, my studies, because I had this belief that I've been away from my country for eight years. I always said to myself that I'll come back to Romania when I'll have something to give. (laughs) Now the circumstances were that I had something to give, Uh, and I knew that as a student, I wanted a different model for teaching, and I wanted to embody that new model of teaching. This is how FabLab came about. I wanted to create a safe space where students could ideate, co-create, experiment, fail, win, (laughs) but I wanted to create a context in which they could express themselves and they could find different ways to reach career goals and to find out what their career paths would look like in the future. I'm very fortunate that uh, everything that I teach here and everything that I do in research and teaching is related to the jobs of the future. The skills and the competencies and the knowledge that I try to give them is very much about how do you make a career? How do you become a professional with impact in a context of uncertainty? Very dynamic, but also very exciting with a lot of possibilities. Three years ago, I started FabLab. Our first project was actually a podcast, and it is a podcast. It's called Digital Society Podcast. This year, we are already 100 members from different disciplines, different walks of life. And we're we're doing amazing things. Our biggest project, I think, it's called Connect Me. It's a platform. What I do at the classes with the students feeds back into what we do at the lab. The lab, I didn't tell you much about the lab. This is a research development and innovation lab in the social sciences. I do think and I do believe from my experience so far as a data scientist and a network scientist that there's a lot of focus in the STEM area about innovation. Um, And social sciences are somehow, but there's so much potential there. These people are really well trained in communication science, in political science, in sociology, in things that could really help us change things on a societal level. I work with them uh, during the classroom. I give them projects to do on things that are interesting to them, like mapping projects, network science, the analysis of digital data, different data sets that you can find online. In advertising online, they develop different campaigns. We do this in partnership with organizations, local, regional, national, international, depending on the topic. The student teams get to work with client organizations in a real-world environment. What comes out of this are materials that really speak to science communication. So we create visuals. So we wanted to map civil society, or we wanted to map a video game, or we wanted to map a a book or a TV series or different ecosystems that are really relevant for us. And we work with these organizations and we create analyses and visuals out of that. Best projects become part of an exhibition. For three weeks, we put one size posters in the university open to the public. We also created a platform called ConnectMe, and in the platform, we put the projects of the students and their profiles. We also have a section, students ready for work. Uh, they advertise the skills and the competencies that they developed while developing the projects. We created a brochure called Kat- Catalog, written with the K, kata, as in the imaginary fight for martial arts, and log as the IT jargon of documenting your journey. This catalog is developed for employers, where we put information about the processes for the project development and the projects themselves and the students. We also have a matchmaking event where we bring in employers and students. Basically, this whole ecosystem is trying to revert a little bit the employability paradigm, where you say, create like a job fair. Employers come and then students come and check out the employers. What we want to do is to change that on its head and say, Let's have a hub where the students expose themselves with the projects they do. These are demonstrated skills that they have. And then we bring the employers to get to know our students and recruit from a pool of dedicated individuals with a lot of skills and a lot of capacity. This is Connect Me. We also organize Women in Data Science. It's a conference that we organize under the Stanford University Women in Data Science framework. I'm really happy that some of my students are really young ambassadors for women in data science and together we organize a yearly this conference where we invite all sorts of phenomenal women that uh, work in the field in different capacities. We have Digital Society podcast where we discuss different areas. This year we're going to start a new series around branding, what does branding look like in different areas and how do we work with it. We also have a series Interviews with experts in quality, the, um, the impact of quality of air on our health. We have problems with quality in most the uh, urban settings, so we want to understand better how this is shaping up. This comes together with a series of journal articles dedicated to the public in order to raise awareness about quality of the air. For my students, actually, develop an app where you can navigate this, not by the fastest route from A to B, but along the best quality of air (laughs) between A and B. These are some of the projects that we do. We're planning a bunch of other things like, for example, developing a museum for digital art. I work a lot with students in digital media, advertising, communications and PR, journalism. All these young people have a lot of drive into talking and promoting different ideas, and I'm there to support them. It's a lot of students self-organize into teams, and they teach each other things. And of course, they benefit from mentoring and guidance from seniors, practitioners, and academics, and other people who can help them in their journey. This is what we do at FabLab.
0: <laughs> wow, it's just so impressive. There's just so many dimensions to that, and I love that you flipped the way of approaching it. The whole business of students applying to universities is the university inherently has the power to decide it's a lovely switch to the student actually having the power to select what it is they're looking for. I love that. Now, where did the language conversation emerge from? Is that something that came out of the anti-corruption? Anti-corruption is just something I picked out of the third zone of of your expertise. I'm interested in anti-corruption. All nations, to be honest, are going to continue to undermine their capacity for a healthy, robust economy.
1: On the one hand, the language has to be specific to all the, these different contexts. On the other hand, there is this red thread or wire that kind of keeps everything together. Very perfectly spotted that my profile is very diverse. But the only constant in it is this understanding of how networks work. And this is basically what I'm trying to analyze, study and build, <laughs> is these networks. Whether we speak about corruption issues or about building healthy and sustainable and robust ecosystems in civil society, or whether we do that in organizations.
0: So I think what you said earlier about worldview is the pointer to the shift in language. It's the pointer to where all of a sudden when we're looking at things that differently, then it requires a different lexicon, a different group of words to use that have would suggest a lot more depth and texture than some of the words that when people hear it, they automatically associated, it's hardwired. As this new language comes out, as we pay attention to what words we're saying, it allows a different level of communication. The opportunity then is to bring the conversation, the languaging up to the level of the discussion. Absolutely.
1: For me, this was basically the aim with my PhD thesis. Studying corruption networks, I realized that I had to bridge different disciplines. Each discipline was speaking about the same things, but with different jargon. We were speaking about the same things, but very confined within the discipline. But having this network approach allowed me to bridge that into a different vocabulary that was understood by all the different people who work in these fields. And also clarify some of the notions and the concepts that we've been working with. For example, going into the anti-corruption, my main was around state capture which is sometimes even a legal form of corruption. It's a bit more complex than petite corruption and the way we see it, it's sometimes institutionalized and embedded into the systems as well. And the entire literature was speaking about the power of business capture. Businesses are not the problem. <laughs> they capture the governments and the funds and everything like that. But my research shows point blank that most of the times we actually speak about political corruption. And we haven't had in- to parse apart this distinction, but with the network approach, we'll be looking at different configurations, looking at different logics of action. We're looking at different ways in which we can intervene in disrupting corruption networks and uh, constraining political capture and business capture. What I did for my PhD thesis was to take the public procurement data, which is publicly available data, and public procurement happens in all the countries in the world, and it mostly has the same structure. You have public institutions who have calls on different services and products, that done, and there's a competition for businesses to win those contracts and deliver on the services and products. Very few people, actually, worldwide, have looked at this information as a network. So, connecting public institutions to businesses through public procurement contracts. And the ones who did look at that, they didn't look too deep into it because they probably didn't have training in networks. Because I had the training in networks, I naturally looked at it as a network and I started digging deeper and deeper. I developed a methodology where you could assign basically different corruption risks to each contract. And you could look at the ecosystem. I developed a methodology for prioritizing interventions. This is dedicated more or less to public institutions who have in their mandate going after corruption risks. After my PhD, it took me five years to develop this. I looked at the case of Hungary for different markets. And what I did was prototyping the methodology. Then I came to Timishara, I participated into a hackathon, basically one month after I defended my PhD. In 24 hours, I had a software prototype that was analyzing this information for every country. Then with this, I participated in a public procurement (laughs) contest. And I won together with anti-corruption researchers and very well-known researchers in Europe and globally. We won a contract with the Competition Council in Romania. And now this methodology is implemented at the national level as a methodology for prioritizing interventions in anti-corruption. The reason why this works so well is because we shifted a little bit the focus. The way anti-corruption was usually done is whistleblower accounts, which is a very subjective method. But in countries like Romania, where you have endemic corruption, We're basically speaking about corruption machines. And although Romania has been the most successful country in the world to put behind bars, high-level politicians and business people on charges of corruption, corruption as a phenomenon has not gone down. We've been successful. Of course, corruption is an endemic problem. We found from the whistleblower accounts all sorts of cases where you could demonstrate that there was something fishy happening there. But we didn't have a methodology to systematically disrupt these corruption machines. With this methodology and with the public data, you don't even have to go further than public data. Imagine what an institution can do with all the other kinds of data that they have under their, their disposal. You can map the ecosystem and you basically start from understanding the ecosystem and then analytically identifying key players, communities, and all the other contextual information that validates the corruption case. The methodology became more effic- efficient and effective in terms of their resource spreading the timeline and it's a systematic and scientific process so it's valid as well i did a six-month post where i scaled up the methodology i looked at 28 countries over 10 years i looked at more than 10, 10 million contracts in all the 28 countries plus the european institutions this framework works very very well
0: Now, have you found there were some threads running through that 10 years? The framework is invaluable from a policy point of view, decision-making point of view. Frameworks like that are really essential for working with complex issues because they don't dictate anything. They just offer a way of organizing it. They offer a way of seeing things and thinking them through. But in the actual experience and the process that you went through, did you notice any other threads that sort of ran through from a human point of view in this mm-hmm. challenge of being better at being human? What did you notice? So first, I identified the typology of network
1: structures in terms of public procurement and how these corruption machines come about. And these typologies look at countries where it's very easy to identify hotspots of corruption and intervene very punctually in disrupting that. And there are countries where things become more and more complex, where there's a lot of discretionary power. Most of the interesting stuff happens there. In Romania, for example, if you look at the map of the typology of Romania and Poland and other countries where this is a problem, you will see this hairball of orange and green, orange being high corruption risk, green being low corruption risk. That tells you that people working in these organizations, they don't necessarily always know what's the difference between low and high corruption risk. Sometimes they contract clean, sometimes they contract in a fishy way. You don't really know if this is a political mandate, if that's just incompetence, what is the key there? If this goes unnoticed, this has a lot of impact. For example, in Romania, what happened? Not knowing all this background information is that the authorities would go and put behind bars the head of the county council on charges of corruption. At that point, the entire institution froze because people didn't want to sign anymore because they didn't know the difference anymore, right? If I signed something, would that be good or bad? That tells you something about the culture around it, about the way we've been doing administration in such a way so that we cannot distinguish
0: these. Really gray zone. Wow, that's absolutely fascinating. Where do you see this all going? And let's look at it from the global level. For me, the work you've done and just what I've learned from the certification process with ONA and OrgMapper, one of the things that struck me is that because I read dynamics, I go into environments that pick up signals and cues and I start to be able to see what's the character of this particular organization, team, or even a town, depending on the scale of the town even not depending on the scale, because sometimes you can at least get the mental state of a town just by watching how they handle age, how they handle race, how they handle whatever it happens to be. One of the things that struck me in our coursework was the discussion around the Small World Network, the three different groups. My daughter lives in a small town. And when I go up there, I'm picking up these signals, picking up cues. You well know when you do that, you have to be very mindful about how you interpret and how fast you come to conclusions if you ever do whether you just stick asking more questions to keep digging deeper but the character of the signals that i was seeing and then the characterization of that network was just spot on it was phenomenal just how direct a link there was so i think there's an element of network science to help us point to how do we make things better When you understand the character of the existing network and you understand what it's strong at and what it's not so strong at, there's a real opportunity to backfill on the weaknesses by setting the conditions for things to get better and relationships to improve. That was my observation. Is that something that you've seen and how scalable is that? to global conflict? That's a very good question and a very
1: hard one to answer, but here's how I perceived and what I tried to do, at least in terms of the anti-corruption fight. I know most of the important players in the anti-corruption scene globally because I'm in the field. And I always witness this glass ceiling that at some point we hit. And that's because a lot of the efforts are just repeating themselves in different areas of the globe. Well, we could scale this up, but in order to scale this up, we have to create a network. (laughs) Together with some friends of mine from the field, I created this uh, anti-corruption tech initiative, where basically we're bringing together communities of data journalists, researchers, people who work on this to get us more aware and aligned about what we are all doing and how we can build together on that so that we can eventually scale up. Together, yeah, all the networks, all the individual players, global south,
0: global north, all the different dimensions. That's exciting because that's collaboration at its highest level. Yes. You know? And yes. it's what we
1: need. It demands this exactly because of the complexity of the issues. The model can be replicated in any other issue based concern that we have, whether it's yes. about supporting women, whether it's about diversity and inclusion of any kind any sort of issue. I think it needs at some point to span the boundaries of our local context, connect to other people who do similar things and try to co-create together something that is bigger than us.
0: I think that's the key to diversity because complexity, first of all, demands diversity. If you don't have diverse views, you're not going to achieve robust solutions. The whole fabric is weakened. Uh, Diversity, biodiversity, it's one of the fundamentals of life and vitality and resilience of life on the planet. That's a lovely value and benefit uh, around the work you're doing. It's to bring diversity in so collaboration can actually happen.
1: Exactly. And talking about the small world, I think there's so much value in that, right? Because the small world, what does it imply as a model? It implies groups, tightly cohesive groups that get connected through certain individuals long-spanning ties connecting disparate groups together. This way we shrink the distances among us. These outbound boundary spanners create opportunities for information flow, diverse information flows to reach our communities. It helps with mobility of people and knowledge and ideas and things like that. It's also a very resilient type of structure. In the communities, you can provide the cohesion, the belonging, the identity, the support, the trust for deep work. But this combination and cross-functional ties allow new information to come in, for new ideas to be generated, new ways of
0: working, and so on and so forth. Yeah, brilliant. All right, let's circle back to the ONA Summit coming up. What excites you about those conversations coming up in November? To tell you frankly, o Summit
1: is generally the highlight of my year. It's an intellectual feast, seriously. It's about people who really believe that they can change things to the better, come together, but in a very actionable way. Because these people, like most of our participants in the community in general, is made up of HR professionals, so people who are in charge of entire communities and the well-being of communities, leaders of organizations who inspire and support initiatives around well-being, researchers who know what to do with the data in order to make more informed decisions, enthusiasts about organizational culture, organization design, change management, and all of these things that are happening to us, sometimes without us even wanting them around, right? We are just subject to these things. They have all these people who have real interest and real power to go back into their organizations and do things a little bit better now with some tools at their disposal that can help them do this better. Just to be there and listen to the conversations and listen to what sorts of questions these people ask themselves.
0: You also have a community built up around that where people who haven't been to the summit before can go and take a look. Where would they find that? On LinkedIn,
1: OrgMapper. On our website, if you reach our website and you do sign up for any of the events that we are doing, you automatically are brought in. You can sign up for a newsletter. You find out about these events. We feature things about our speakers, interesting people who do interesting things, uh, interesting ideas that can circulate around. And of course, Donna, you're part of this community and you've seen how vibrant it is. These professionals are super busy professionals, but they do take their time every once in a while to check in and discuss the project discuss what we are doing, what can we do better, and things like that. It's a very passionate and enthusiastic community, and I love that about it. I think it's quite rare. I've been exposed to different kinds of works in different kinds of communities, but this vibe that I get around the ONA Summit and this type of conversation about these things, this
0: really excites me. It excites me too. It's just like going into a warm hug. I just love it. <laughs> Donna, I'm very honored actually that
1: this year you will be facilitating one of the sessions which brings back the entire knowledge that we went through throughout the day. And we, we discuss that and we make something out of it. I'm really looking forward to that.
0: Well, me too. And I'm thrilled. To be, I'm very honored to be involved as well. Thank you very much. Great conversation. I love learning from you. It's brilliant. What I appreciate for me is depth, the amount of depth, because I think a lot of the things we've been doing in organizations amounts to moving furniture. It's not really going deep. Now is a time for depth because the size of the issues, the complexity of them and the dynamic nature of change demands that we dig deeper.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And dig
0: deeper, but also look at the interactions. I think that's a
1: really important thing.
0: Yeah, it's a combination of understanding what's going on here versus just seeing people interact and blaming, oh, look, they're in conflict. It's their fault. They need to go on training. All those superficial solutions that are completely ignorant of the system that's driving it. That's one of the beauties of this work. Thanks again for being on the program. Thank you so much.
2: Those of you who've been listening to my podcast for a long time know that I'm always looking for tools that we've found or tools that are available for us to Adapt our thinking to fit the context, the deeper context, wherein we've been moving the furniture around for a fair length of time, and now with the complexity of the issues and the demand on humans to evolve their consciousness, to widen their consciousness, and to become quite fluent with working with diversity on all levels that we need these tools to help us along, not only from a cognitive point of view, but also from an emotional, social point of view, because working with organizational network analysis demands more consciousness at the leadership level. A couple of other podcasts you can listen to. One is the introduction with Andras Vyshek called What Can Pidges Teach Us About Networking? That was recorded back in 2018. Uh, Then there's a conversation with Maya Townsend, and more recently, Michael Arena, one of the speakers for the last summit. Finally, Nico Petit, who spoke on the deeper leadership dimension. I'm hoping that with all of these opportunities, you'll have a chance to do your own deep dive into who you are and and how you evolve as a human when working with the sensitivities of interrelationships, and the sensitivities, particularly, around trust. My name is Donna Jones. You can find me on LinkedIn at D-A-W-N-A-H Jones. I welcome inquiries and conversations about both speaking and consulting, particularly with respect to group dynamics and decision-making. Naturally, anything to do with organizational transformation and leadership consciousness is well-situated in my domain, with that goes complexity and uncertainty, naturally. That's this episode. If you appreciate it and you would like to others to know about it, please share it. The more people we have signed on for raising organizational awareness for better decision making, the better the chances we can get for organizations with workplaces that work for humans as well as serve their purpose. Thanks for joining me.